Hello and welcome to another episode of Ain't It Scary with Sean and Carrie. I'm the titular Sean. And I'm the very titular Carrie. It's the show that takes you inside the unbelievable, the unexplainable, the macabre, and the bizarre and tries to find an answer. Hello, Caroline. Hi. Listener, hello to you as well. <laughs> We're leaving behind the fun and games of the holiday season. Oh, so many fun and games stuck at home with COVID for a week. And we're moving right along to uh, some darker subject matter this week. Mm -hmm. uh, real lives were lost, uh, real families destroyed, uh, or at least one family. Um, Carrie, you what... have no idea what you're talking about. <laughs> I'm inferring? Carrie, what are we talking about? Well, Sean, uh, it's an unsolved disappearance. Of a person, group of people? A group of people. A family? Some. Okay, so would you say that a family was destroyed? Maybe. Okay, all right. So, <laughs> I, was, so I was on the right track. Yes, Listen. this is a, a, a mass, I guess you could say, unsolved disappearance. Um. And there's something about a lot of, I mean, any really unsolved disappearance cases. Uh, it just creeps me out to my core. Just the unexplained nature of them. Um, those weird little details that make no sense to literally anyone trying to figure them out. Are we going to talk about aliens and death cults? No, unfortunately, because that would be more fun. This, is, <laughs> this one's pretty serious. There's, uh, yeah, and there's something about, like, the randomness of it all that just makes you kind of shiver a little bit. Okay, I'm excited. This week, I'm going to be taking you through the case of the Springfield Three, one of the weirdest disappearance cases I've ever looked into, and one with many of those odd aspects that stick in the brain long after you first learn of them. Do tell. I am salivating, and I'm sure the listener is um, as well. You know, ears, salivating with my ears. Oh, you should probably get that checked out. Yeah. Oh, hold on. I, I have a Classic. handkerchief here for my ear drool. <laughs> this case originates in Springfield, Missouri, uh, a town in the Ozarks area. The Ozarks being the location of such movies and shows as Winter's Bone, True Detective, and Shocker, Ozark. Yep. Starting, yep. Uh, starring uh, your friend Laura Linney. Right on the tin with that one. Oh, do I love Laura Linney. We know, we know. Abigail Adams herself. <laughs> As a note, along with episodes devoted to the case by the shows People Magazine Investigates and Disappeared, which I believe both of those are on ID Discovery. I will be using other info available online from the Charlie Project, the Springfield, Missouri webpage, the Streeter, Streeter family blog, which uh, is run by family members of two of the victims, the destroyed family that you talked about, Sean, <laughs> and some other sources. Um, you can also look at a podcast called The Springfield Three, A Small Town Disappearance. It goes into like a mini series amount of depth into the case, including interviews, which we're not doing here today. What we're doing here today is kind of providing an overview and the main points of the case, because I feel like it's not very well known. I mean, you clearly had no idea what it was. A family was destroyed, Carrie. <laughs> um, Sean, the story begins with a classic rite of passage, high school graduation. What's that graduation song? As we go <laughs> no. on, we remember. It's not Hail to the Chief, but it sounds like Hail to the Chief. Oh, you're talking about Pomp and Circumstance? Yes, there we go. Uh, Mm -hmm. So you kind of have that whole vibe throughout uh, the beginning of this story. 
best friends Suzanne, Susie Streeter, and Stacy McCall, 19 and 18 years old, respectively, graduated from Kickapoo High School in Springfield, Missouri, on the afternoon of June 6th, 1992. Is the Tenacious D song about them? <laughs> um, it might be... Wait, what's the song? No, it's like he is in Kickapoo doing nothing and then oh well i mean ronnie james dio comes through the wall and turns him into a rock god i can't i can't speak to that but i will say that kickapoo high was also the alma mater of one brad pitt and by the way his name isn't brad pitt it's william pitt i just well aren't you gonna aren't you gonna cast brad over over bill sure i also found out today sean and this is completely unrelated joe rogan Yes. Is cousins with Gerard Way from My Chemical Romance. News Radio's Joe Rogan? Well, one of them, yeah. Isn't that crazy? Yeah. That those are just people you can't ever imagine being related. Um yeah, there's there's some of those out there. I, I can't think of I can't <laughs> think of any. Kirk and Michael Douglas. Well, <laughs> Okay, so back back to the, I just had to share that because that really blew my mind. Um, so we have Susie Streeter, Stacy McCall, seniors in high school. They've just graduated on June 6, 1992. Susie and Stacy had met around second grade and had gone to school together most of their lives. Um, they weren't always super close, but I think a lot of the nostalgia kind of pulled them back together at this point. Mm -hmm. You know, the end of high school kind of vibe. As we go on. <laughs> that's, that's the one for this. We remember. Stacy McCall was more of the stereotypical good girl, a good student who would model bridal gowns at the dress shop in town. Susie, meanwhile, was more artsy into like the bad boy types, but she wasn't really known to cause trouble herself. It was kind of more who she associated with. She worked at the local movie theater and she was known to be very friendly and very outgoing. The girls got their diplomas that day and they were really excited for the future. Susie was planning to go to cosmetology school, and Stacy was going to be heading to college at Missouri State in the fall with the girl's mutual friend, Janelle Kirby. But first, it was time to party. Mm -hmm. that, that could, that's all for after summer, baby. Sure. First, we have to do the plot of, um, oh, not Greece. Greece is the beginning of school. The, pl <laughs> the plot of Dazed and Confused. Yeah. Uh, instead of attending Kickapoo High School's all-night alcohol-free graduation party, they instead party-hopped that evening, ending their festivities around 2.15 a.m. when they were last seen leaving to head back to Susie's mother's home at 1717 East Del Mar in Springfield. Were they, was it like dazed and confused, do you think? Like out in the woods with a keg? People no, climbing a radio No, but tower. It's, it's a little, it's a little wonky. Um... So just to just to kind of clarify, Susie's mom um, was named Cheryl Levitt. She lived at the home uh, with Susie. They lived by themselves together. Uh, Cheryl was 47, a single mom. Uh, she had recently been divorced. And I think she had recently just bought this house, too. I don't know how recently, though. Uh, she was herself a cosmetologist, which influenced Susie's chosen profession. Uh, they were, again, very close. So Susie and Stacy, and there are a lot of S names <laughs> in this. So I'm trying to 
Well, and Susie Su- is Cheryl's daughter, and Stacy is their her friend. They both also have S's right in the middle, so yes. Susie and Stacy is so much. Yes. Um. So Susie and Stacy, the teen girls, called in a night since they were heading to an amusement park named Whitewater the next day in nearby Branson, Missouri, for a big friend meetup, and they were planning on getting up early for this. At some point in the night, they were also seen in the town of Battlefield. Um, Battlefield? Yeah, well, I think there was an actual battlefield nearby from the Civil War. I I would think, yeah. Which could come in later. Who knows? Uh, Originally, they were both going to stay the night at a hotel in Branson near Whitewater, but they decided to stay at another friend's home in Battlefield. Susie had called her mom again around 10.30 p.m. to let her know. So that was the last time that they talked. Mm-hmm. They decided to change plans again. And this is so stereotypical of like kind of free will in summer fun, like whatever. Hot girl summer. Hot girl summer. Um, they decided to go to Susie's to sleep instead because Janelle's home, their mutual friend in Battlefield, was too crowded with family. Um, Janelle's family from Kansas was all staying over for graduation. And there were no beds. So Janelle was the last person to see them before they left, uh, sometime between 2 and 2.30 a.m. Unfortunately, the alleged timeline of the women's final known hours is kind of convoluted as we just went through because they were just party hopping all over the place. Right. And there was alcohol yeah. involved as well. Mm-hmm. Uh, Cheryl Levitt, this is Susie's mom, she was last heard from at about 11.15 p.m. when she phoned a friend and she discussed a chest of drawers she was painting at the time in the house. So she mentioned she was doing a craft. It's not relevant, but you know. And this is the mom at the house that they are on their way to. Yes. Cheryl didn't give any indication that something was wrong or that she felt unsafe in any way during this call. It was normal. Stacy had told her mother, again, that she was staying at Janelle's that night, but it seems, uh, again, Stacy didn't update her once they figured that they were going to go to the Streeter Levitt home to crash. Susie and Stacy drove back to Susie's home in their separate cars, and that was the last time they were ever known to be seen. Were the cars found at the house? Yes. No one ever heard from Susie Streeter, Stacy McCall, or Susie's mother, Cheryl Levitt, ever again. Wow. So right off the bat, first of all, we have this kind of mass disappearance, which in itself is weird. Three people just vanishing. Mm -hmm. You usually hear of like a single person disappearing at once or maybe multiple people disappeared over time, but they were found in the same place, like with the Ariel Castro kidnappings in Cleveland. But for two older teenage girls and one of their mothers to vanish all at once is, to say the least, very odd. Even if it was just the two girls, you could say, well, this could be a runaway situation. Who knows Mm -hmm. what they're uh, off doing? Teenage girl, uh, hot girl summer, right? Who knows what they're up to? But the mom being missing as well. Mm -hmm. Something's immediately super wrong here. Yeah. Uh, According to some places I looked at, there weren't any other cases of three people disappearing from the same location at once in this way until this one. Wow. I mean, yeah, because if you think about like a kidnapping... Yeah, I mean, there are other, yeah, there are other things where, um, I think there was, what was it, the Donner children or whatever, with that weird, 
uh, thing where their house was lit on fire and the kids kind of disappeared. And we'll go into that sometime. But Yeah, sure. <laughs> uh, maybe a mini, maybe a maxi episode. Yeah. It's weird that it's not like one family. It, it's just, it's weird. But that's not the last weirdness in this case. Well, it's also, if you were going to, like a kid, a disappearance that's a kidnapping or a murder, if it's like, if three people being kidnapped, how much... You know, how much manpower do you need? Do you need like six dudes? Is yeah, it a squad right. of assassins who are there to kidnap the, the, these people? If that's what happened, yeah, and um, so that's why you don't see a lot of three-person disappearances. Yeah, I'm uh, I'm going to go into the evidence or the kind of state of the scene, but it's really hard to figure out, and that's that's one of the weird things about it. The next morning, June 7th, Janelle called her close friend Susie's house around 7.30 a.m. to make plans to get on the road and head to the Whitewater Amusement Park. This is the same Janelle that was the last to see Stacy and Susie when they left her house. Right. I thought she was going to be the third victim. <laughs> well, that's that's another twist. Plot twist. No one at Susie's house answered the phone. Again, this is 1992, all landlines. So she left a message on the answering machine. She had been planning to go to the gathering at Whitewater with the two girls, so she kept on calling and waiting for them until about noon, when she was kind of becoming concerned, or at least was thinking, hey, did these bitches leave without me? Yeah. Janelle and her boyfriend Mike headed over to the Streeter Levitt home to see what was up. Yeah, to give them a piece of her mind. <laughs> well, just to like, wake them up, maybe. I don't know. There, they first found all three of the women's cars in the driveway. Um, the girls' cars were had like those that kind of half circle front driveway thing, and uh, Cheryl's car was in the car park. It was like a overhang, a carport. Yes. So, um, so now they're going like these dicks are eating waffles. Like in they're there. all here. Why aren't they answering the phone? As they mounted the front steps, Janelle and Mike noticed shards of glass scattered to the ground in front of the front door. It looked like the glass casing around the globe light above the door was shattered. That's weird. <laughs> Definitely thought you were going to say like, you know, a window next to the door where somebody... No, it was the globe light. Michael Myers to their way into a <laughs> handle. Unfortunately, considering that later this may have been some good evidence... Mike decided to sweep up the glass because Janelle was barefooted and he didn't want her to cut herself. So he swept the glass away. Right at this moment, right? Like he didn't know it was evidence yet? No, of presumably. course not. Yeah. yeah. And he thought he was probably doing, he didn't want his girlfriend to cut her feet. I'm always walking around barefoot in the summer, so I get it. And, and um, he thinks he's helping out the people yeah, who live there. He thinks he's doing a solid. They found that the front door was unlocked and they went inside. The house looked very normal with nothing seeming to be out of place. The pair checked the backyard, nothing. The family dog, Cinnamon, a Yorkshire Cinnamon. Terrier. Yeah, he's very sweet. Um, the dog was still in the house and looking fine, but kind of anxious. Which again, that, that's Poe's kind of... Sounds like a Yorkshire Terrier. Well, yeah, yeah it's like it, it's a normal state of being for a small dog. <laughs> Uh, Janelle and Mike waited a few minutes to no avail, but as they headed out to leave the house, the phone rang. This is the <laughs> phone inside the house, the landline. The call is coming from inside the house. <laughs> Just in case it was one of the girls for some reason calling the house, uh, Janelle picked up the phone. Isn't that funny? When a phone is ringing, you just have to... I guess. Someone's got to answer it. 
It was not Susie or Stacy or even Cheryl. It sounded like a man who wouldn't identify himself and was described as an obscene phone call where he made sexually explicit comments. Um, okay. I could not find anywhere where Janelle divulged the actual contents of the call beyond that it was a lewd call. But the contents presumably did not include, I have these three girls no, and here's I don't what think I'm it do. mentioned anyone by name. Janelle hung up, remembering that Susie had mentioned she'd received prank call- phone calls before, and this was a common thing for people to do back in the day. There was no internet. We had to make our own fun. The phone rang again. Same scenario. Oh, Jesus. Janelle hung up and sick of the landline creep, the couple left thinking that the girls had just left to go to the amusement park without them. In what car? I don't know. Meanwhile, the McCalls, Stacy's family, were starting to get antsy too. Stacy had told her mother that she'd call when she got up, um, but she, you know, hadn't updated her on where she would be staying that night, so... Janice called Janelle's house thinking that Stacy was still there, but Janelle's sister told her that the girls weren't there and that Stacy had slept over Susie's the night before. Mm-hmm. Janice figured that the girls were just on their way to Branson to the park and she decided to sit tight again before cell phones. It, she just had to wait until Stacy called. Yeah, I was thinking too about how when the other, like, when the girl and her, when the friend and her boyfriend get to the house and they're not home. Uh, you would just call one of their, you know, now you would just call yes. one of their cell phones. And when they don't answer, then now you start getting worried. Mm-hmm. Um, but but that wasn't there. No. Seven hours later, Stacy still hadn't called. So Janice decided to go to the Streeter Levitt home as well. And she ran into Janelle and Mike, who had returned to the home to check in again. Apparently. Wait, so did they not go to the amusement park? Uh, I'm, that I'm not sure, but this was in the evening, like five o'clock at least. The group became worried as they looked closer in the house and realized that Susie, Stacy, and Cheryl's purses were all there, including their wallets, makeup, and cigarettes and lighters. Um, Cheryl especially was apparently a chain smoker, like she wouldn't leave a room without bringing her cigarettes. Mm-hmm. So it was super weird that she didn't have them. Janice also noticed that Cheryl's purse was in Susie's room with Susie and Stacy's purses, which she found weird. And she also saw her daughter's shorts and new bra folded neatly on top of her shoes. Those were the only clothes that Stacy had left the house with, including her shirt and underwear. So she must have had just like a shirt and underwear on to go to bed. And it's not really something you'd leave the house wearing. Maybe she, you know, Stacy could have borrowed bottoms from Susie uh, if they were kind of the same size. It's something I've done. If she left on her own accord, but then why leave your bra? Well, she could have put on other clothes too, right? And just not picked up the ones from yesterday. Well, again, it would have had to be Susie's clothes. Oh, because it's not her. Yep. Yeah. It's not her house. And it's not, her, I mean, you, it's not typically something you'd borrow from someone else, a bra. <laughs> so it's weird that she, and like, I think, um, Stacy's mom had mentioned that it was new. So it's like, well, you got to wear your new bra, you know? Like, why is it there? Why didn't they have any of their important possessions with them? Or at least one of the cars? Where were they? Yeah, you. but certainly women wouldn't leave, have left without their purses, and, and definitely not if they're all smokers. Yes. 
Janice noted that the TV was turned on, just playing static. She also checked the answering machine and heard her own messages play, you know, because she had left a few, along with another weird message of a male voice saying strange things. That's another uh, artifact of the past. We couldn't probably tune our TV to static if we wanted to, right? Probably not, no. They should put that on Netflix, just uh, <laughs> just uh, snow that you, that you can't get anymore. So there was a, another weird message of a guy saying strange things. Unfortunately, and you will be hearing me say unfortunately a lot during this case, uh-huh. uh, Janice accidentally, I think, deleted the message. What? Mm-hmm. Janice! And couldn't recall later the exact content of it, which seems very strange to me. But um, uh, Janice just seems worthless. <laughs> Police later said they feel this message is unrelated to the earlier crank calls that Janelle heard and is more related to the investigation, possibly including a clue. But I'm not sure of what reasoning they have for this. Um, I've heard some theorize that Janice does remember more about the message, but police have requested she keep it private so they can later validate evidence. I see. So she might just be playing dumb. Is this still under investigation? I guess we can talk about it later. Uh, kind of. <laughs> Janice then called her husband, Stacy's father, Stu, to tell him that she couldn't find the girls and still hadn't heard from Stacy. Stu headed over to the house saying he felt like he had a gut feeling that something might be wrong. And while she waited, Janice phoned the police. Police officer Rick Bookout uh, arrived on the scene soon after and uh, it's evening by this time. He found several people throughout the house and in the backyard, including Janice McCall, who informed him of the situation and that all of Stacy and Susie's friends that she'd contacted had also not seen the girls, and they were all concerned about their whereabouts. I wonder if his first thought was, why wasn't I called earlier? Like, shouldn't he, shouldn't the cop be like the third person on this scene? Well... There's nothing that looks suspicious, really. Like, you call the police and you say, my friend's not here. I mean, there's no signs of a struggle. There's broken glass. All their purses are still here. Well, the broken glass is from, like, a a lamp, though, outside. That might not be anything. Yeah, all right. If you're you're not. Well, what did this guy say? Did he say give it 48 hours? (laughs) Well, he did a walkthrough of the house and he noted that nothing really seemed amiss. It didn't look like it was ransacked or that anything had been robbed. Cheryl's bed appeared to have been slept in the previous night and her eyeglasses were beside her bed with a book kind of turned over like she was marking her page or maybe interrupted while reading. There was nothing um, that looked like a struggle. Susie's bedroom had been slept in. And hers and Stacy's clothes that they'd been wearing the night before were folded, as we mentioned. And there were make- makeup towelettes in the garbage indicating they'd remove their makeup before bed, which is what you're supposed to do. Unlike me, who just falls asleep. <laughs> Wake uh, up with raccoon eyes. Yes. Um, their jewelry had also been taken off and was still on the table. So that hadn't been taken either. Okay. So they went to bed and then at some point between bedtime obviously and when their friends came over um 
So this is probably looking at like about three to eight. So in that five hour window sometime, someone somehow got into the house, presumably. Maybe. Killed or disappeared them. Maybe. So book out finds, (laughs) your eyes are so wide. Book out finds all three sets of keys, all three purses. And there were even, um, there was even a couple hundred dollars in Cheryl's purse that hadn't been taken. So again, it, it counts against it being robbery. He became more concerned upon finding the aforementioned cigarettes and lighter in the purse because uh, he had been told that Cheryl was like a huge chain smoker and she would not be without her cigarettes. Right. The blinds in Susie's room were pulled apart as if someone had been looking outside. Bookout stated, quote, I didn't see any signs of foul play, but I don't think they left there willingly. Three women are not just going to walk out of the house, leaving things that are important to them behind. Well, uh, yeah, exactly. A note was left on the front door asking the women to contact the police if they returned and a missing persons report was written up. The group left the house and Stu McCall stayed up that night in case his daughter Stacy returned home, but she never did. Ever? Ever. (sighs) I know the answer to that. The next morning, uh, the case really hit the ground running. It was assigned to Detective David Asher with a Springfield PD who immediately felt like something was amiss due to the personal items that had been left behind. Yeah, that's what the previous guy put in his report. He also realized that unfortunately the scene must have been tainted because up to 10 people had been in and out of the home during the previous day. Again, it was unlocked. Multiple people were looking for them. This is uh, like... Any of the uh, family axe murders we've covered. Mm-hmm. Like, yeah, there's always a house full of neighbors just ruining all the evidence. John Benet Ramsey. Mm-hmm. The house was That fi- might have been by design. Well, yeah. We'll get to that someday. The house was finally cordoned off and processed by the crime scene investigators. And detectives at this point theorized that someone either took them from the house in a threatening manner or it was someone they knew. And that's why there was no struggle. Either way, they left their house without making a scene, wearing just the clothes on their back. So the investigation first turned to Cheryl's background because she was older. She was described as having no enemies by close family and that the only way to get the best of her would be if someone held a gun to her child's head. That's a quote. Cheryl had been recently divorced from Susie's stepfather and had bought this home. Um, Both her previous husbands were pretty much cleared very soon after all this happened. Uh, Cheryl seemed to be enjoying her newfound independence and she was focused on her daughter and reinventing her life. The obscene phone calls, as, as we discussed, were of particular interest to investigators, but all that Janelle had gathered from them was that she thought the voice was teenage, uh, teen-ish, but she didn't recognize it. But investigators did say that the message they thought contained a clue. Uh, The voice message, yes, on the answering machine that Janice accidentally deleted. Oh, Janice. Uh, Technology wasn't great for tracing calls back in 1992. And apparently the phone company couldn't trace it. Keep them on the line. Keep (laughs) them on the line. 
Well, Janelle did say that she regretted on hanging up uh, on the guy and trying, not trying to get more of the caller. But again, he was a creep and Susie had stated that she'd received crank calls before. So I can't blame Janelle for not wanting to talk to some anonymous heavy breather. Do you think it was just heavy breathing or were the things he said, he said so obscene, obscene things? So that's all we know that she daren't repeat <laughs> either that or she can't because, again, it might be evidence. Panic began to spread through Springfield, which was normally a town described as where you left your doors unlocked. America's hometown. Uh, family and friends handed out missing persons flyers. Um, they canvassed the area and they spread the word as best they could. The news picked up the story throughout several Missouri counties and that's when they dubbed the women the Springfield Three. Thousands of leads poured in over the next few days which detectives worked diligently to follow up on and during this time they began to pursue another lead Susie's older brother and Cheryl's son Bart Streeter. What do you think happens more often when there's a media kind of circus like that around a case? Do you think it um, helps by, you know, widening kind of the net of search and the awareness of the case? Or do you think it more often um, just becomes too much of a cluster and like, you know, thousands of tips? It's like uh, with Ted Bundy, weren't there just a bazillion, bazillion, bazillion tips that police had to just sift through or just not sift, just throw your hands up and go, we're not looking anymore. Yeah, I think it's a mixture. Um, I think a lot of media scrutiny can taint a case. uh, And I think sometimes a case is only broken by someone seeing uh, a show and being like, oh, I know that person, you know, so it's really, it's really a double edged sword, I think. Yeah. So Bart Streeter was nine years older than Susie. And he was seen by most of the family as a black sheep. At this time, he was an alcoholic and had a turbulent relationship with his mother and sister. Don't have a cow, man. <laughs> and he'd recently had a bitter falling out with both of them. Susie had apparently been afraid that Bart would hurt her after this point due to his violent temper. And his slingshot. <laughs> um, the People magazine investigates documentary went into Bart a lot more than other places that I saw including uh, a interview with Cheryl's sister and Bart's own aunt, who said, quote, I know he's my nephew, but I don't have a great deal of respect for him. Would he be able to do something like this? Maybe in a fit of rage and passion, but I don't know. That was like a couple of years ago, his aunt saying that. I mean, him. A, that's scathing. Um, <laughs> B, I, I think what, what it looks like we have here, and it doesn't look like a fit of rage, and passion that was then had to be hastily cleaned up afterward. Right. But anyway, take that for what it is. Yeah. Bart had left home at 17. Uh, he was known to be violent because he had punched his own mother previously. Oh, Bart. No, sir. And he hung around with alleged lowlifes and supporters of his alcohol addiction. He was also said to behave bizarrely sometimes. And it became so bad that Cheryl had asked him to not be a part of her and Susie's lives. He'd left for a couple years, but returned to Springfield after a breakup, and he was really wanting to try and repair his familial relationships. He got a new job. He was trying to clean up nice. Interestingly, Susie had moved in with Bart after she turned 18 during her senior year of high school. With her brother? Yeah. That's interesting. 
it's unusual. Uh, while Cheryl didn't approve of this, she felt that maybe it would either help Susie see who her brother really was, or ideally he would step up to the plate and look after her and maybe they'd become closer. Do you have any sense? I mean, you said he was trying to step up to the plate. Um, do you get any sense that that's actually true or was he just like saying he was? I think he probably had good intentions, but he was still an alcoholic. So at one point after Susie moved in, Bart had been getting drunk and blasting music and Susie asked him to turn down the stereo and he refused. So she leaned past him to turn the music down and Bart grabbed her, becoming violently angry in his drunken stupor and eventually hit her hard enough to bruise her face. Oh, Bart, no. So he's like a serial puncher. Not great. Uh, She didn't speak to him after that, and she returned to living with Cheryl. Yeah, that, yeah, that tracks. (laughs) Bart said that he was at a neighbor's getting drunk the night of the disappearance. The neighbor verified this and said Bart got sloshed and left a bit after 11. Well, hold on. That doesn't absolve him at all. I'm aware. Bart said that at this point he returned home and slept it off that night. I'm a little unclear on corroboration that he was able to get for this alibi of being at home. I'm a little unclear just how it's an alibi. <laughs> well, the People Magazine Investigates documentary said that there was no corroboration, but the Disappeared documentary said that a girlfriend verified it. So I don't know what's right. A girlfriend? Verified that he was home. Maybe she was there. Oh, that's all yeah, I heard Well, that would make it. sense. Sure. Um. Though, either way, police were concerned. A polygraph showed that Bart was being truthful. Take that however you will. Not admissible in court. Um, Barely real science. Go ahead. He was also tabled for the moment as a suspect because he continued to cooperate with the investigation and he seemed to be trying to help. So police widened their net, looking at not only other suspects, but hoping to find more evidence. They dragged Lake Springfield. (laughs) Not like a reading is fundamental dragging. (laughs) Um, They were trying to see if they'd find any bodies or anything related to the case. They used um, helicopters to scan the area. They utilized police and cadaver dogs. They found nothing. Unfortunately... Uh, her brother Bart wasn't the only negative male presence in Susie Streeter's life. Her ex-boyfriend, Dustin Reckla, also emerged as a person of interest as the police continued their investigation. Remember how I said that Susie liked the bad boy types? I do. I, for some reason, didn't see that as a planted seed at the time. (laughs) Well, that was Dustin. Um, Susie's friend, Nigel, described their relationship as, quote, they had a good relationship. They got along really well until they didn't. Mm -hmm. So, I mean, a relationship, but. (laughs) Yeah. Uh, Nigel also said that Dustin was basically a good guy, but in with the wrong crowd. In February 1992, Dustin and his friend Michael Clay took Susie's car to the site of a mausoleum where they uh, broke in and literally stole human remains out of the mausoleum to take their teeth. Uh, Kids being kids. (laughs) Uh, They left the skulls in a tree in a nearby park and Dustin sold 26 grams of gold fillings from the skulls at a local pawn shop, which called the cops. That is a lot of effort. Mm-hmm. It, 
it, like for you forget the desecration of the corpses. It just seems like how you couldn't possibly get enough gold to be worth the effort of pulling all those um, dead teeth grams. out of those skulls. I really have no sense of like measurement or anything, so I don't know. <laughs> Susie was brought in for questioning because again, it was her car, and she cooperated. She was uh, scheduled to testify against Dustin and Michael in court sometime after her disappearance. And it was clear that she and Dustin had broken up after this point. So much like a mob hit, did Dustin and Michael enact revenge on Susie to prevent her from testifying in their trial? Um, Right now, by the way, a gram of gold is $58. Okay. So it's not bad. No, it's probably pretty good, pretty good money, actually. So we'll investigate this theory and more after the break. (gasps) Hi, I'm Matt Harris. Seton Tucker and I host the podcast Impact of Influence, which for two years covered in depth Alec Murdoch, who was eventually convicted in 2023 of murdering his wife, Maggie, and son, Paul. That story continues to evolve, and we will cover that. Plus, we will tell you stories of other true crime events that have happened in the South. Please join us on Impact of Influence. And give us a follow on the Impact of Influence Facebook page. Welcome back. When last we left you, we were just going to get into the investigation that followed the disappearance of the Springfield Three. Uh, Caroline? Yes. Y- you told me there were some twists and turns coming. Yes. And there are. We have three women, two recent high school graduates, Susie Streeter and Stacy McCall, and one of their mo- mothers, Cheryl Levitt. Um, they have all vanished from the mother's home without a trace, without any sign of where they went, who they might be with, and without taking any of their possessions with them or leaving any signs of a struggle or theft. And seemingly with the clothes on their back? Yes. The latest suspects that we were talking about in possible foul play related to this case are Dustin Reckla and Michael Clay, who used Susie Streeter's car in their crime of breaking into a mausoleum, stealing skeletal remains, and desecrating corpses to sell their fillings. Right. Nice guys. And they broke up after that. Yes. I don't see motive for a triple homicide there. No, uh, Susie had told That's a big step up from stealing corpse gold. Yes, Uh, Susie had told police that Reckla and Clay were the ones who committed the crime, so she had pinned it on them. She was scheduled to testify against them, and conveniently for them, she disappeared before she got the chance. Police immediately called Reckla and Clay when they found their story out, and apparently Clay told Detective Asher that, quote, I wish those bitches were dead. Well, maybe something you wouldn't say if they had uh, just been murdered at your hands. Yeah. I mean, again, like, just like you said, would you elevate to murder no, well, to cover I... up a far less serious case? Right. It, it's, uh, it's a larceny thing, right? I mean, this sounds like this gold actually was worth a lot. And also there's the corpse desecration thing. But you're, you're not going to do a triple homicide to cover up something that you're going to go away for like a couple years Unless for? you're enormously, enormously stupid. 
Well, and or you just want to kill people. And these are the um, gold tooth corpse robbers. So <laughs> yeah, Reckless stated that he went to a concert and was passed out in a car on the night in question, but no one was able to corroborate this. Clay, it seemed, just didn't have an alibi. This is why you always pass out in cars <laughs> with a buddy. The teen's fingerprints were taken to compare them uh, to those with the crime scene, but there were no matches found. They both took polygraph tests as well and passed. But again, as we always say on this show, it's a bunk science. How do you dust for prints on this case? You don't know it what must, part of the house is the crime scene. It's not. I mean, you dust the whole thing, right? Uh, any kind of surface that you think would have it. But again, 10 people going in and out plus the victims, that's plus, a lot of elimination you're going to have to do. Plus just any non-family visitors they've had yeah, in general in the last few weeks or months. Yeah, exactly. Months more passed until a tipster called into the police and suggested they look into a man named Robert Craig Cox, the main suspect in the 1976 um, murder case of a woman named Sharon Zellers. I, but before we continue, I have to ask, did this called tip come after like a lot of heavy breathing <laughs> uh no it seemed like a normal tip you gotta look at this guy <sighs> <laughs> christian bale batman <laughs> so yes so uh he was the suspect in the murder of sharon zellers another s name i apologize sharon zellers was a florida teenager who was abducted on her way home from disney world where she worked Cox had been staying in a nearby hotel in Orlando with his parents while they were visiting Disney and returned the night of Zellers' kidnapping badly injured. His tongue had almost been bitten off. Um, so he was arrested for this kidnapping? Well, he was taken to the hospital and he insisted that he uh, had done this himself. It was uh, just a terrible accident. But the nurse was like, no, it was bitten from the other way because you can tell Oops. by the curvature of the teeth. Right. Right. Um, and police found Sharon's body only 100 or so feet away from Cox's hotel room. Oh, not careful. So Cox was convicted and sentenced to death for the murder, but he got off due to a rare ruling that his conviction and death sentence should be overturned due to lack of evidence. Oh, no. Mm -hmm. The Zellers family, however, kept track of him, believing he was the killer of their loved one and that he would kill again. Um, that's not the kind of crime that is usually an isolated incident. Exactly. Especially since it was already a random killing. In 1992, they found that he was working with a telephone surveying company at the time of the disappearances and was checking out the phone wiring under and in front of the Streeter Levitt home. Um. Cox was also weirdly previously employed at the same car dealership as Stuart McCall, Stacy's father. Okay, so it's, well, Stacy's father, but they were at Susie's house, right? Yeah, but that's okay. weird. Yeah. <laughs> It's, it's a connection. Stu said he didn't remember him, but there were times that Stacy did bring meals to her father at work, and Cox had likely seen her. Yeah. Okay. <laughs> if he was obsessed with her, I just, I don't know how he knew she would be sleeping over to that house. So he... Well, I, I theorize about it a little bit later. Uh, okay. <laughs> 
After being brought in for questioning, Cox told police that he had nothing to do with the disappearance. He said that he went to a golf tournament that night, stayed with his parents, and took his girlfriend to church the next morning. He doesn't sound like a big golfer. (laughs) The girlfriend backed up his story uh, and said, you know, we did go to church and all that. And there wasn't much else police could do to detain him because, again, no evidence. By the way, so many of my friends are single. (laughs) Well, we'll get into that later. How does that guy have a girlfriend? I mean, there's something to be said for confidence, I guess. Years later, in 1995, police learned that Cox was sent to a Texas prison for holding an armed weapon on a 12-year-old girl. Big yikes. Um, Dopplerum. <laughs> he began to serve a life sentence for aggravated robbery. Detectives went to Texas to re-interview him, and things began to change. He didn't confess to the disappearance or to killing the Springfield Three, but he didn't deny it either. Once... He just didn't talk. He oh. wouldn't talk to them. Okay. Police re-interviewed his girlfriend from the time of the disappearance, who had provided his alibi, and she had drastically changed her story. Uh-oh. She told police she had no idea where Cox was the night of the disappearance, and they hadn't actually gone to church the next day. So... She was just covering for him. Right. I think she thought that he was doing other crimes at the time. I, I thought he was doing non-murder crimes. <laughs> A local TV reporter interviewed Cox in prison in 1996, and Cox broke his silence about the crime, staying, stating that, quote, I know that they're dead. I'll say that. I know that. That's not my theory. I just know that. There's no doubt about that. Well, I know that, too. It's, I mean, yeah, or, or it's incriminating, you know? I Not, not for me. I didn't do this, <laughs> just to be clear. <laughs> After this, law enforcement returned to Texas to re-interview Cox once again, and though he wouldn't admit he was responsible, he kept repeating that he just knew that they were dead, and that he would tell them the truth when his mother died, but not before then, as he didn't want to embarrass her. And as far as about, like, three years ago, she's still kicking, so. Oh my god, well, so that sounds more like this guy... Is saying, I did it, but I'm not saying I did it. Maybe. Police were unsure whether Cox was really serious or trying to just get some attention, attaching himself to a crime for notoriety, which is kind of a common criminal tactic, like confessing to a crime you didn't commit. Right. Well, why not confess to it, though? Because it's mysterious. It keeps them coming back, baby. And he is not spoken about the case since and again as far as i know his mom has not kicked the bucket so maybe when she does there'll be something new coming but that's it um false confessions are definitely a thing we'll have to cover henry lee lucas (laughs) uh, the world's biggest fan of burger king um at (laughs) at some point on this podcast but uh, people yeah confess to things they didn't do all the time Mm -hmm. um i wonder if you would dangle a, a false confession this way but uh, but there there was that uh, he's got life in prison he's he's only got time keep him coming back for more and we had at least one db cooper guy who, who was mm-hmm. like maybe i am db cooper we'll never know <laughs> saucy little minx in 1997 after five years of the investigation uh, police were forced to close the case due to a lack of emerging evidence and leads 
Cheryl Levitt and Susie Streeter were legally declared dead by their family, but the McCalls refused to do so in Stacy's case. And the case has remained cold ever since. But Sean, that's not the end of the weirdness or the strange little details. Not by a long shot. Oh, thank God. So I'll go through some of these chronologically and chart a bit of a timeline. And uh, and then we'll go into theories at the very end and we can see what we both think. Okay. So first, a friend who also arrived at the Streeter Levitt home on the morning of June 7th noted that Susie was parked in an area she wasn't usually in within the circle driveway. The friend noted that it looked as though either Cheryl wasn't home and she had maybe like parked back a little bit to let her in and out of the carport. I see. Or that someone else had been parked there. Not sure how this fits in, but I wanted to note it. So like a little gap between Cheryl's car and hers, probably. Well, Cheryl's car was in the carport, but like there was a gap behind it, I guess. And you would think that you would pull all the way up behind the car. Yes. As far as I could tell. On June 14th, about a week after the women first went missing, authorities searched an apartment building after a letter containing a rough drawing of an apartment complex and the phrase use ruse of gas man checking for leak was found in a newsleader rack at a grocery store nearby. What? Say all of that again? <laughs> it's very weird. Okay. It's a week after the women go missing. Authorities searched an apartment building after finding a letter containing a drawing of that same building and the phrase written, use ruse of gas man checking for a leak. And they found this letter in a newspaper rack at the grocery store. What does this have to do with the case? <laughs> They're trying to do anything that they can. But, but, but I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to go into it when we do theories. It, it could play in. Okay, but... <laughs> From the information I have, am I missing something or does it appear to have nothing to do with it the could, Yeah, theory? I mean, it could have nothing to do with them. But they, they were literally grasping at straws. This is like... And a, this is a week later, so that's not great for the investigation if they're already grasping at straws. This is one of the red herrings they'll throw you in, like Sherlock Holmes consulting <laughs> detective. Yeah, but it's also like, you know, at least they are being diligent and looking, they're literally looking at everything. The next day, they started working on a tip about a transient who neighbors had seen near the home days before the disappearance and produced a police sketch of a man with long hair and a full beard. Okay. Nothing came of it, but you know. A couple weeks after this, the disappearance, a witness told police that she spotted a woman matching Susie's description driving an early model Dodge van about, this is like a panel van, about two miles away from the Streeter Levitt home. The van was celery green, and it's also alternately called avocado green or moss green, but sure. celery green is what they usually go with. Um, and the back windows were painted over. And she said that she saw this person matching Susie's description early the morning of the disappearance driving this van. The witness said that Susie looked like she was crying heavily as she turned the van around in the witness's driveway. And the witness heard a male voice saying, don't do anything stupid as it happened. When was this reported? This was reported a couple weeks after the disappearance. Because what? the witness hadn't come forward earlier because she hadn't seen the missing persons poster at that time. But when she did see it, she saw Susie's picture and she recognized Streeter as the driver of the van. 
Do you think it's possible that she remembered back into that, edited into that memory, don't do anything stupid? I I mean, I don't know about that, but like, she could have seen another blonde girl, you know? Yeah, but the woman crying and hearing a man's voice say, don't do anything stupid... I'm calling the police whether I recognize that person or that's, not. That's, yeah, I mean, I would too. So there's something weird. Something weird. Yeah, right? I would say someone just turned around in my driveway. I would probably make note of the license plate, but I'm not sure if there was a license plate on the front. But they turned the around. Van. Yeah, I guess. But if, if you're, yeah, I know. If, if you're you do facing a the driveway, turn. yeah, you, it might be all on the side. Um, a van was painted to match the description and used as an example for the public, kind of like parked in front of the police. Okay. This seems more like a station. gimmick than an investigative tactic. But they were sure. trying everything. Uh, and you'll see a lot about the celery colored van whenever you look into this case. <laughs> this is like that John Bonet Ramsey uh, doc on CBS or whatever, where they built the whole house. <laughs> like, so we can walk through the crime scene. As uh, but it was, was kind of cool. It was kind of cool. Later that month, a tip came in. Oh, by the way, I think part of the reason they did that is because they had to do the the reenactments anyway. So you might as well. Uh, That's a good two birds, one stone. And you're look, you're CBS. You've got a props department. Yes. Anyway, unrelated. Later that month, so this is June uh, 1992, a tip came in from a server at Cheryl's favorite restaurant, George's Steakhouse. They told police that the three women came into the restaurant sometime between 1 and 3 a.m. on the night in question, both arriving and leaving together. During the visit, the waitress said that Susie appeared to be drunk and maybe upset about something and that Cheryl was trying to calm her down the whole time. This is very interesting. And this stuff, unlike maybe a couple of the other things we've heard, this all tracks with the rest of it, right? We know they were off getting drunk. Yes, but this is probably after they arrived home. Right. But but it was the two girls and the mom? And they had already taken off their, their makeup and stuff. Yes, it was the two girls and the mom. Oh, they had taken off the makeup. That's why it's weird. And police said that the server was likely mistaken on which night it was, maybe, because the steakhouse was typically very busy at this time. It was the weekend. But again, who knows? Who knows? That was between 1 and 3 a.m.? Yes. Did you say steakhouse? I was going to make a note of that, but I was like, well, it's the 90s. People didn't have anything to do. Maybe it was open. <laughs> I don't know. Weird. Maybe it's like an Applebee's more like. This you know, is Those Missouri? are open to like 2 a.m. Missouri. Yeah. Weird. Yeah. I, uh, I also read that in late summer the same year, an elderly man was arrested in Springfield for making lewd crank calls to homes all over the town. And my main source on this is Web Sleuth, so, you know, but it oh. seemed to be common knowledge to them. Well, okay, so that could suggest the calls are unrelated. Yeah, many theorize now that the obscene calls were from this geriatric creep and not related to the case. I thought he sounded teen. I know, right? I don't know. On New Year's Eve 1992, a man called the America's Most Wanted Tip Hotline after the case was discussed on the show with information about the disappearances. The call was, unfortunately, do a shot... Uh, cut off when the switchboard operator attempted to link it with the Springfield police. Oh, and, and before I guess that was hung all, up or something. It was all heavy breathing before that? Well, police said that the caller had prime knowledge of the abductions. I'm not really sure how they knew if they never got 
connected? Maybe he said something to the switchboard operator? Yes, hello, I have prime knowledge of the abductions. (laughs) Click. And the police publicly appealed for the man to recontact them, but nothing came of it. Now, what the hell? Well, either he really did have something that maybe he said to the switchboard operator, or maybe it was just the police trying to explain away why they didn't have any new evidence. Like, oh, it's not my fault. People keep fucking up, you know? I mean... Who would, yeah, but who would take the time to call in and then when you get disconnected, you don't call back? Yeah, that's weird to me, but they don't say exactly what it is that made them feel this guy had evidence, but. And no call ID. (sighs) Yeah, in the 90s, man. In August 1993, information led police to search farmland in Webster County for bodies. They disclosed that they found items at the scene, but didn't elaborate, and the results of the search warrant were sealed. It was 50 cigarette butts. A lead in 1994 pushed authorities to search a section of Bull Shoals Lake, where pieces of clothing were found, but they did not match the description of what the women were thought to be wearing. Most interestingly, in 2006, a group of amateur detectives went to Springfield Police and Greene County Prosecutor Daryl Moore with their theory that the three women are buried under a parking garage near Cox South Hospital, which was built a year after the disappearance. Cox? Yeah, Cox Hospital. Didn't we have a suspect with that name? We sure did, yeah. They're not connected it's not oh. like his family's hospital or oh whatever. i thought like his family was but isn't really that rich. weird <laughs> that his family was really rich and like the foundations were poured right after the <laughs> well uh, i've read that this could be uh, they thought that this could be a burial site due to a tip from a psychic and i keep oh jesus i kept seeing the thing about the psychic repeated but i don't know where that comes from authorities decided not to dig under the garage saying there isn't enough evidence to warrant the cost of digging So one of the sleuths hired mechanical engineer Rick Norland to come to the hospital and investigate the disappearance of some women. He was not told specifics, how many, whatever. Uh, Norland, for his part, is an expert with ground-penetrating radar, and he was known for assisting with victim recovery from 9-11. So, oh. professional guy, not just some schmo. And his area of expertise is finding bodies under concrete. Yeah. Yes. A GPR, ground penetrating radar, it can be used to detect buried objects, changes in the material underground, and cracks or voids under the surface. So Norland scanned the garage, looking to see if there were any anomalies under the car park's pavement. He found three anomalies, all roughly about the same size, two parallel and one perpendicular to the other two. Um... So that's definitely them, right? He said that this is basically what you'd see in the case of a grave site. However, the Springfield police were not convinced that these results were convincing enough to justify tearing up the concrete and felt the timing didn't add up as the garage was built a year after the women's disappearance. But that, as far as I can tell, is when it was completed. Oh, no. According to the disappeared episode, and... This case is so far back now that there's a lot of conflicting stuff. But according to this disappeared episode, it was under construction during the disappearance. No! 
kind of convenient, like Jimmy Hoffa being buried under, what is it, Giants Stadium? Yeah. It, well, if that's true, it might be Shea Stadium. If that's true, Giants makes more sense. I think it's a football stadium, so I didn't know if it was Jets or Giants. It's the same stadium. Oh. <laughs> <laughs> if that's true, that is some fuck bad police work, Carrie. That is a bad excuse from the police. Yeah. I mean, it's a freaking parking lot. A small area of it. Just dig it up. Why not? They seem to be reconsidering digging it up again in 2010. But since then, as far as I can tell, not a mucho. And that was 12 years ago. Mm -hmm. Some people say that it would have caved in by now. That amount of... Uh, like a hole underneath concrete being driven over and stuff. But I don't know. It's a small area of the parking lot. And it's just three. Three anomalies. Three little bodies. Three body-sized anomalies. Just in the concrete, presumably. In a shallow crevice under the concrete. Just dig it up. Just dig it up. Just dig it up. I wonder if you would have to destroy the whole parking garage, though. No. just no (laughs) i'm getting so mad right now if it's It's just just a hole in the floor if it's just a hole in the floor that you could repave then it's enraging that they won't just dig up these bodies it seems insane to me so here's my question do those cyber sleuths um do we know who their suspect is because presumably if they knew the burial site they, they have to have an idea of who did it that i'm not sure what I'm, I again, I I didn't go to like the original web sleuths posts about this, so I apologize. I I was kind of looking at the discussion of the actual investigation into it, and and Rick Norland looking into it. Um, I don't know because there are a lot of theories, and uh, let's go into some of them. Okay. So first, we have Bart Streeter, Susie's older brother, Cheryl's. Ne'er-do-well son. Yep, boozer. I just, I don't think this is it. Uh, He may have been a shithead with a temper, but killing them? I don't know. The only... And Stacy, someone he may not even have known. Here's the thing. He has, in a drunken rage, punched two of the three women in the house. And that's not great. It's very, very not great. But, no, of course. (laughs) Uh, That goes without saying. But what what that says to me is... The only way it fits with him killing his mom and sister is he kills them in a violent, drunken rage. That part I see. And then the house is immaculately clean afterward and he disposes of these bodies. No problem. And it seems like something that sloppy. would be sloppy or passionate or whatever. So I don't not buy it. sneaky and calculating. This was like the deadly viper assassination squad. <laughs> Um, I, I mean, and he would have to kill Stacy and why would he even think Sue, like if he went to kill both of them, why would he think Susie would be home? It was graduation night. Well, no, I, I, again, I, everything you've told me makes me think that if it was him, it would be like an accidental. Yes. He hits his sister with an iron and or she something. Falls on she something falls on She falls and her neck breaks and then he goes, oh shit. And the mom goes, you killed her. And then he strangles the mom. But again, there would be evidence. Yeah. Yeah, there'd be evidence. Bart was also interviewed on the Disappeared episode and was the creator of the Streeter family blog that kind of put together a lot of the crime 
facts and tips. So I know killers are stupid enough to insert themselves in media all the time like this, but uh, taking a risk like that is big. And it just, like you said, it doesn't add up for me. Um, It seems like something that would be done out of passion or anger and there would be evidence. And in the disappeared episode, for his part, he sounded regretful of his actions and he took full ownership of his alcoholism and abusive behavior. So... Now we have Dustin Reckla and or Michael Clay, the grave robbers. Uh, yeah. These two doofuses. Um, it would be robbery. Yeah. I mean, also, it just seems like a big jump for me to commit triple murder to prevent one witness talking at your grave robbery trial. Well, yeah. And, and it's not like a kidnapping for ransom. There was nothing taken from the house that was valuable. So so it would be like a, what, a psychosexual, like serial killer kind of a murder that. Well, just like or just like a mob type of hit, like you can't witness against me, but then you kill oh, right. two I, people. You don't have to. I forgot about the witness angle, but, but three... you make Cheryl and Stacy collateral damage. Like if they really wanted to do something to Susie. They could have gotten her alone somehow to do the deed, right? Why involve two other people in the crime? It's not even like they're, she's a linchpin witness. Um, the pawn shop guy is probably your star witness there because they sold him yes. a bunch of teeth. When police first went to investigate the pair, they arrived at Clay's home when he wasn't home. However, they caught sight of some kind of altar, including a pentagram poster, candles, and an animal skull leading to to thoughts of some sort of satanic ritual. Oh, so we are going to talk ding, about ding, cults. Ding. <laughs> well, Sean, as we both know, these are probably just the decor accents of a gothy kid. Um, In 1992? Yeah. Yeah. When the police returned the next day to question Clay, all of the paraphernalia had been removed. Well, he knew the police were coming back and he wanted mm-hmm. to look like a nice little boy. Exactly. Ronald Craig Cox. Now, this guy gets to me. He's clearly a terrible person, a violent criminal, even if he didn't commit that first murder, which I think he did. It sounds a lot like he committed that first murder. The fact that he worked with Stacy's father and had likely run into her and was working at the Streeter Levitt home near the time of the disappearance is a lot of coincidence at once. Yeah. How close to the disappearance was he working on the phones? This was something I only really saw in the People Magazine Investigates documentary, but it seemed like around that time. That's uh, pretty suspicious. The, again, the car dealership thing, whatever. Was Cox lurking around the home, spotted Stacy arriving there late that night, recognized her, and decided to do something to the women? Maybe he had even knocked on the the door wearing his uniform, informed Cheryl that the house had some sort of problem, and he was let in for some emergency maintenance. It could explain the lack of a struggle. And there's also that use ruse of gas man checking for leak note, which could fit in weirdly. Oh, (laughs) no. That still has no... But it's... I mean, it weirdly could fit in. Why did he put it in a magazine rack? I don't know. Maybe he's like uh, the uncle in It's a Wonderful Life and it's just very... Or maybe, very forgetful and maybe this is like a hit and that's how, that was the dead drop for his instructions <laughs> was the magazine rack and he forgot to take the message away that's um, just a little a little bit of spice on there but i mean if he was a creep he knew these two women lived at that house alone 
or maybe just knew Cheryl was there. And then these two pretty two girls arrive late at night. And one of them, he's like, oh, I've seen her before. Maybe he goes in the house. And his family is building a hospital nearby. (laughs) Not his family. But I mean, and then you go to Cox Hospital. You might have, it might stick in your mind that they're building a Cox Hospital because that's your last name. Just like if they were building a McCabe Hospital around here, we might make a note of it. And you dispose of the bodies uh, in the construction site. Before they pour the foundation. Mm -hmm. I mean, it's interesting. It's very interesting. It fits. It's the only one you've given me that fits so far. Or it could have been something else completely altogether different. Uh, It could be a serial killer, some weird mystery. There are plenty of theories around Springfield uh, to this day and around the Internet. Well, if if it was that guy, that guy Cox, he is a serial killer. (laughs) Right. And Uh, uh, where is he? Did he end up in prison for something else? in Texas for that um, armed robbery. It could be the Missouri Mafia because... Why? Something about Cheryl's sister being involved in the Mafia and maybe this was a hit. Well, then kill her. Exactly. Uh, It could be other various convicted felons and killers going through the countryside at that time, including Gerald Carnahan, Larry Dwayne Hall, and Stephen Eugene Garrison. These are whole other rabbit holes that we don't have time for for today. But if you're not satisfied with any of the other possibilities, um, you could check it out. I've heard of maybe a mass rapture event being posed as a half <laughs> a half serious theory, but um. Well, it's not a mass rapture if it's well, only three people. Three three person rapture. I just uh, I don't know. What do you think, Sean? I think Cox makes the most sense to me. I, I think it's possible it was just a random um, maniac. Um, I won't be satisfied until they dig up that car park because there's no. They haven't found them anywhere else. There's no sign of them anywhere else. But if it really was under construction at the time. And the idea that the guy running the radar didn't know that there were three women he was looking for. And he's an expert. You know, I mean, we trusted him finding victims in 9-11. Why don't we trust him here in Missouri? Like, just, just dig it up. Well, in 9-11, all you were digging up was rubble. Parking at a hospital is shit anyway. Just, like, close it off for a week and, and dig it looking, up. You were looking for real people as well in some cases, then. You, We could be looking for sorry. real people here. Sorry, these are real people. I mean living. I mean living people. That's true. But still, like, just do it. Cause the, or there's going to be a question mark always. And yeah. it's a parking lot. It's not even, like, part of the hospital that's important. It's not the cancer wing. Dig it up. Dig it up. Cox is definitely the most interesting to me. I don't like when criminals are very coy about things because usually that means that they're just being coy and they're not involved. But some of these other things about him working around the house and him having seen Stacy McCall before, probably like it's very intriguing. Just having been convicted of that first murder on those circumstances. A violent crime against a teenage girl involving kidnapping. And then getting off and that he moved to this town. So even, I think his parents were here. But even before you said that he was working outside the house and stuff, I was like, yeah, they, they, you know, this is already a pretty yeah, good Yeah, and then he, he comes into possible contact with both sets of people. And the only question is, 
it again looks like a really well done you know I, i'm not patting him on the head or anything but it looks like a, a pretty uh, efficient professional no traces left kind of a job if these women were snatched and um is he i don't know based on his first murder it doesn't seem like he maybe is equipped for for uh, really really tidy um but maybe or he learned lessons maybe maybe he drove them somewhere or maybe Susie was driving that day and they ended up somewhere else and he killed them and you know this tip only came in later he might have had time to clean up after that if it wasn't in the house where else were the police going to check you know the question would be whether he committed any more murders after this because uh, well he committed don't seem to stop violent offenses which is why he was in and then he ended up in prison, prison. yeah so I don't know. I think that's the most intriguing one so far, but um, I'll let sh- I'll let y'all know if if we hear anything if if Cox's mom dies, or if they finally dig up that parking lot, which I still don't believe they have. Um, maybe we will get answers someday. Find what you can on that lady's health. It might be our best bet. I'll do my best. Dig it up. Dig her up. Greetings from Evergreen Podcasts. We're rolling out a listener survey, and we want to hear from you. The information in the survey will help us gather statistics and in turn make our shows more appealing to advertisers. I know most people don't like ads, but this is one of the only ways our shows make money and help keep their lights on. We promise it will only take a few minutes, but the impact on our podcasts will be tremendous. As a token of our appreciation, we'll randomly select one lucky participant each month to win an exclusive merchandise package from Evergreen Podcasts. Head to evergreenpodcast.com slash listener survey to help a show and possibly get some free stuff for doing so. We can't thank you enough for the support. Now back to the show. On a lighter note, it's our Weirdo of the Week. Following hot on the heels of Mystic Baba Vanga and her 2022 predictions from last week. Oh, yes. Do we have more predictions? Well, we have Lad Bible reporting on Jemima Packington, better known as Mystic Veg. You don't go with Aunt Jemima? Really? Nope. Mystic Veg. Veg? She's a fortune teller herself, hailing from Britain, and is known as the world's only Asparamancer. Oh, Jesus. What's that, you may ask? I don't. Well, Miss Mystic Veg claims that she can view the future by tossing spears of asparagus in the air and interpreting how they land, like some sort of stinky pea divination. Oh, it's like the I Ching. (laughs) Apparently, Mystic Veg previously uh, correctly predicted Brexit, the death of Prince Philip, Theresa May being ousted as prime minister, and Harry and Meghan stepping back from the royal family. In what words? That's what I'm always curious about. Was it like, <laughs> and two of the great shall be uh, no, cast asunder? No, it's more specific than that, as far as I can tell. Um, due to her being British, a lot of her predictions are very British. So More crumpets. <laughs> well, you know. Uh, for her part, Veg says... 
quote, I am usually about 75 to 90% accurate with my predictions. I go through my predictions each year and think, yep, that's happened. Yep, that's happened. Occasionally, I get one slightly off where I haven't quite read it correctly, but I am never far off. I predicted Boris Johnson would become prime minister about four years before he did, and everyone laughed their socks off. Um, are you right 75% of the time, or are you always right and sometimes it's off a little? <laughs> For her divination, she requires fresh Worcestershire asparagus grown in the Vale of Evesham. Wow. So that's the good stuff. Yeah, sure. You need a connection to that fairy land. Among her predictions for 2022 are Boris Johnson will continue as prime minister. Okay. The royal family will endure more sadness, including scandals and worse. Well, the queen's going to die this year, probably. COVID and all its variants will be with us forever, but everyone will learn to adapt and not let it get the better of us. That's not a prediction. She predicts it, Sean. A brand new way of living will become the norm, working from home and such, but people will no longer accept accept shoddy services hiding behind the guise of the pandemic. She's describing what's (laughs) happening right this second. Well, she's very good, Sean. Climate change will continue and fewer countries will be active in its reversal. We will be shocked at the news of the unexpected demise of showbiz legends. What? Tense times will continue on the international front, but conflicts will be avoided. The Oscar for Best Picture will go to The Power of the Dog, and Benedict Cumberbatch will be nominated for Best Actor. Oh, So she also gets into film criticism? (laughs) The West Indies will be the surprise winners of the Cricket World Cup in Australia. Oh my God, we have to to, uh, keep track of that. (laughs) And agriculture will progress well, and the Vale of Evesham Asparagus will continue to be recognized as the world's best. Is that one she sticks in every year, like a Groundhog Day kind of? (laughs) Maybe. Uh, So there it is, Sean. We've got peace, love, and asparagus. I love it. From the, um, from the Asperomancer. Oh, Mystic I veg. I can't wait to build a, an Asperomancer in D&D now. Absurd, truly. It's like casting bones, but dumber. Um, it's like casting bones, but dumber? Yeah, casting bones. Oh, like I see. throwing bones. I thought there was a D&D spell called bones. <laughs> so there it is, Sean. Um unbelievable well thank you for sharing your wisdom with me and um don't thank me thank mystic veg mystic veg and uh betty white just passed uh, rest in peace R. so R. maybe mystic veg's predictions are already coming true oh my that's it for this episode of ain't it scary with sean and carrie like us on Facebook and follow us on Twitter and Instagram at Ain't It Scary and check out our website at ain'titscary.com. You can support the show by supporting our sponsors and becoming a patron at www.patreon.com slash scary. And please subscribe to the show and throw us a five-star review on Apple Podcasts. We'll be forever grateful. Don't forget to screenshot your five-star reviews and share with us on social media for your chance to win a gift straight from us. 
and we'd love to have you over on Patreon. Uh, we had a send-up of Christmas novelty <laughs> tunes um, this past week to cap off the holiday season. Uh, next week, I'm going to read Carry Some H.P. Lovecraft, so you can listen in on that um, if you're interested. Special thanks to those of uh, you already in our top patron tiers. Nate Curtis, Sean O'Donnell, Jared Chamberlain, Maria Ferrante, Robin McCabe, Comfy Mike, Alex Nakutis, Ryan Regan, and Christy Atchison. Thanks, guys. We love you. See you next Thursday. Show created by Sean and Carrie McCabe, music by Kyle Ryan, and you can find Kyle at his YouTube channel, Music is a Verb. This has been a production of Longboy Media. 24 hours ago, I found out the person that I'd been dating and seeing for the last six months as a con man. That is my sister, Emma. Andrew Tonks's lies had been so convincing, she'd invested $300,000 with him. However, the tables were about to turn on Andrew. What he didn't know was that Emma had discovered his real identity. But to get any chance of justice, Emma had to act like it was business as usual. Coming up in this series, and that's when murder, all this stuff goes through my mind. I'm really, really scared. I'm assuming Sarah has watched too much Netflix and figures I've been defrauding you. Couldn't be further from the truth. That's what this was, a real-life story that seems so unbelievable, but it was actually true. A true story that all starts with one simple swipe to the right. I'm Sarah Ferris. And I'm Emma Ferris. And this is my story, Conning the Con. <laughs>